To the 35th episode of the OpVac cast. Uh, coming into October, Optimus Vaccine is going to be celebrating a month of Canucksploitation or Canadian filmmakers. Uh, our first examination is David Cronenberg. So, this episode starring Jake Tropila. Hey, how y'all doing? And Jack Eason. Hey, how are you all doing? This is the first episode of two parts where uh, we are going to be looking at um, eight of David, of David Cronenberg's um, horror films. So I, the basic conceit is I have not seen any of his horror films except for Videodrome, which I've seen many, many times and, and I, I love and I consider one of the best films of the 80s. And uh, the rest of the OPVAC crew basically is um, very uh, knowledgeable about the rest of his career. And I just have sort of just like con- contained myself to this one love of Videodrome and haven't really gone outside of Cronenberg's work except for, you know, his later stuff. Um, so uh, from 75 to 99, we are going to be looking at his horror films. And for this first episode, we looked at... Uh, four films, Shivers, Rabid, The Brood, and Scanners. So um, I am going to be pitching you guys questions, asking you sort of like how to, uh, how, how to navigate these four films that I have just recently watched and, and um, how he has become the, the director that, that we know him as. So, um, yeah, let's start with Shivers from 1975. What's this film about, Jack? Um, this film, this is Cronenberg's, I guess, first feature film, his first feature-length film, and also his first commercial venture. Uh, essentially, it's, I guess, um, strangely enough, actually, it bears some hallmarks with the recent J.G. Ballard adaptation that Ben Wheatley did, High Rise. It's basically about society breaking down in a high-rise building, um, essentially due to a parasitic organism that's run amok that was originally designed to replace people's internal organs or you know pick up and and help people uh if they say for example needed a a organ transplant they could just get this this parasite that would work as an organ for them in exchange for life-sustaining blood or or whatever you what you will um cronenberg teased out that idea a little bit but um a slight side effect of this experiment is that it turns people into sex crazed violent maniacs and basically the parasite spreads through the apartment building and uh, people just start doing very odd things and that's basically the, the setup it's a few people trying to run around for their life in an apartment building trying to escape everyone else who's been infected yeah uh well you you already stole uh my my like one tidbit which was the correlation with uh high rise uh which i haven't seen have you guys seen high rise i have seen high rise it's kind of disappointing actually to be honest i have not is seen it, it is so. it at least is it at least interesting? Yeah, it is. And it's actually, like, the visual design of it is very elaborate. And it's always interesting to watch. I just, 
some of um, Wheatley's execution is there. He's often very blunt with his messages. Like the film ends with a Margaret Thatcher quote that I think is completely unnecessary. And um, and I read the original novel too, which it it kind of there's a lot of madness contained in that novel to really put on screen. And yeah, Ballard again. The this novel and film High Rise is also my biggest takeaway from Shivers is that oh, it's just the original High Rise. Which, interestingly enough, Cronenberg um, would go on to adapt his own high, or, uh, ballad novel with Crash right. in the 90s. Yeah. Oh, was it yeah, Naked Lunch? Or, oh, sorry, no. Naked Lunch was Burroughs. 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 That's right. Yeah. Sorry. It's all right. Um, yeah. Uh, so it opens um, – Shivers opens with um, like this uh, – like I don't know. I guess you could call it like a corporate video. Uh, like parody, I guess, um, or, or it apes this style of, of like um, this corporate video about this high rise. Um, and it all is about this island um, that it wants people to come stay on. Uh, and I immediately, immediately it was like, okay, what kind of metaphor is this going to be um, like this island? Um, do you think that, that this manifests as any sort of uh, metaphor that holds any water? I think so. I, I think, like, I've always, because I'm a huge fan of this film, and this film really kind of took me aback the first time I saw it years ago, because, I mean, I, I knew Cronenberg from The Fly, and I Videodrome I'd seen, and I'm similarly enamored with Videodrome as you are. I think it's, are you always say Videodrome is Cronenberg's greatest film? But, um, Shivers was kind of, it started off, and it's, it's very rough and ready. It clearly was made for not a lot of money, and I just I really enjoy the way the film develops because aside from all its gory set pieces and so on, I feel like it's a really barbed uh, attack on bourgeois values. I mean, I think the 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 apartment block is is kind of depicted as you know your own private retreat, your little apartment block or your little apartment where you can get away from everyone and have your own space and be close to downtown, but kind of separate from the city it's sort of you know the suburbanite kind of dream you know cleansing yourself from values that you don't care about yeah Yeah. you know kind of isolated and picturesque but completely moderated by by technology and you know kind of an unnatural dwelling space essentially and of course throughout the course of the film everything breaks down and it breaks down in spectacular fashion um i mean this film what struck me watching it again for the first time in several years is how absolutely uh, crazy it is. I mean, it re- he really pushes a lot of buttons. There's incest, there's pedophilia, there's all kinds of um, weird sexual inferences that are openly invoked throughout the film as as the pe- as the people succumb to the parasites, as they succumb to base a kind of a base subhuman nature or perhaps the most human nature you know that's i guess you can take that for whatever mileage it will give you so it's it's i think a very much a film about a man who's trying to mankind getting to this stage with the high-rise building that they're escaping from the tethers of nature and then succumbing back down to it again kind of falling for their their hubris perhaps or for their un, or, or for their affection for something that's unnatural that's uh, not really desirable. Hmm. Yeah, I agree with everything Jack said. And the that opening corporate video really sort of paints the um, the structure like as this idyllic compound where they have like, on staff doctors and any any basically anything to meet your needs, and it's kind of points to like the folly of of a utopia where it it's just something that cannot sustain or last. And ultimately crumbles. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's interesting because I, I said this was Cronenberg's first commercial film. He'd made several experimental short films or shorter films yeah, prior to this. He'd made two films, Stereo and Crimes of the Future, which were – they were shot on like 35 mil. They were real film productions effectively, but they were extremely experimental. They were hour-long. They weren't really commercially viable. So Shivers, ironically, for all of its – as I say, I mean, it invokes a whole lot of taboos, is really Cronenberg actually – specifically trying to be commercial trying to make a film that will sell and it worked i mean this shivers actually made a huge profit compared to its very meager uh price tag when it started actually made back its money before it was ever released it was uh it sold so well i believe Khan is where they they brought it to and it sold over like 50 countries before it even got a uh real debut and um, but i mean his his original his, his original script for it was called orgy of the blood parasites which you know that was i guess cronenberg trying to be commercial trying to be as eye-catching as possible so it's kind of interesting that this film um which did take advantage of like canadian at the time uh, quebec montreal specifically which is where the film was was shot was doing a kind of a, a government film incentive and so this is actually a tax funded film which was a nice. cause of major a cause of major uh, consternation in its native canada while it sold well everywhere else in canada it was very much uh, attacked uh, to a large degree because it was so controversial in its contact or content while being government funded being tax funded essentially but um this this is his you know attempt at kind of being mainstream being normal and it's not a normal film at all what is the what is the other alternative title there there are several alternative titles um in the u.s i believe it was originally released as they came from within um and then Orgy of the Blood Parasites was uh, the original script name. I think it was called The Parasite Murders originally in a lot of English-speaking territories, including the English-speaking parts of Canada. Uh, the French title, French-Canadian title, was Frisson, which is Shivers. And that seemed to co- carry over as the... I think Shivers is now the the best-known title for the film. But yeah, it, it went through a lot, of, a lot of different changes, as a lot of films of that kind of budget and content tend to do. I, one one thing that I was really impressed with, um, though it was like th- they are like super like low budget, is that uh, this film like the set design and the cinematography are very like clean and bare. Like they seem to like the best low low budget films. Like I mean not not the best, but but the ones that often make the most of their money are ones that are that are very like very like set and, and in their aesthetic and um they don't bog the, bog themselves down with a lot of detail you know so they sort of like um don't let you know how cheap they are um and it, it works to its advantage i think it it makes it a bit austere like it makes the the high rise a bit more austere um uh, as this like you know sterile atmosphere it is, yeah. There's certainly a sterility to it. And it's actually funny because apparently it was shot in a newly opened high-rise complex um, that had mm. opened, I believe, on, I think it's in Nunn's Island in Montreal. I've never been to non- Montreal, so I have no idea where this stuff relates to to each other, where that is. But apparently they, it was it, like, they shot in an actual newly opened high-rise Um so some of the apartments weren't completed. They were able to store equipment in that. Uh, some of the apartments, a number of them are actually, they they literally did an open casting. Apparently, Cronenberg has talked about this that he was he casted everyone in the film and literally had open casting where anyone could come in and audition for David Cronenberg for a role in his movie. So a lot of the people, the extras, the apartment uh, inhabitants are just 
people who aren't professional actors at all, which I think is not a huge surprise if you watched the film. No, no. Um, but you know, he used he used actual apartments. Some of the the you know the apartment de- decoration. A lot of places is actually they asked people if they could just shoot in their apartments. So hmm. there's a, there's a weird element to and, and it's it's interesting because I agree with you. It has a very sterile kind of an atmosphere, and I guess that's maybe because people had just moved in and was very new. But they're still you know these are actually naturally staged apartments. A lot of them they are actually they were lived in this is how people in montreal lived at this point in time if they were living in a high-rise so it's kind of an interesting counterpoint there that maybe feeds into cronenberg's thesis i don't know the sterile the the, his sterile aesthetic really is kind of informs pretty much all of his films um every film is like very cleanly shot and is very deliberate in pacing almost like he's taking this horrifying element in it and i was like approaching it with this like very clinical cold uh almost medical approach to the situation like if all of his films were just like i don't know low budget 16 millimeter handheld nightmares i don't think they'd be watchable but um it's just interesting to see because this is actually my first time seeing shivers is how well cronenberg had developed his voice as a filmmaker particularly in his body horror genre as he's well known for um with his first film yeah, it's it's it feels fully formed, and that's something that it, it surprised me too. The first time I saw it is how absolutely uh, representative this is of what Cronenberg would later would would continue to develop. That I mean, in a sense, Shivers lays out the template completely for his work up until I guess really up until um, I guess what, what was the break I mean um, kind of a history of violence or maybe a little bit earlier than that but I mean like really he was working in body horror modes of body horror mostly up until through the 90s so you like know it's, Spider maybe Spider yeah Spider was kind of the transition or M Butterfly or no never he last did yeah, Existence and then 2002 with Spiders like his yeah. transition to more cerebral horror films yeah, yeah. So an existence, honestly, I'm I'm not a. That feels like Cronenberg light to me. It feels like Videodrome, kind of a little watered down. I know I'm not the only. I'm not. A, there are other people who disagree with me, but existence has never been one that's really stuck with me as much. But still, it it is interesting. I think the scanners is completely out of the gate. It's and it, it's odd as well. There's a cerebral element to the film. Uh, he has. Um, the doctor who's explaining the played by Joe Silver, the, who's explaining the parasite. Um, it's kind of interesting that his his apartment is littered with these kind of odd quotes, um, some like just on sheets of paper, just decorated around the around his lab that have you know one of the quotes is I think the what is it the road to wisdom is uh, I can't remember the road to excess leads to the palace of wisdom or something. <laughs> just these really weird quotes that are just kind of around the the office and um, they talk in pretty open like openly medical terminology for portions of the film which is very reminiscent of his earlier work i mean his uh, like i mentioned like stereo and stuff his early 35 millimeter film projects are honestly i mean they're they're completely cerebral they're honestly stereo is difficult to watch he made that film pretending he was writing a book and that he got funding to make a film from it and honestly i feel although there's some beautiful images in it it, it should have been a book it's it's a kind of a, a series of ideas about telepathy extrapolated in voiceover um but he's it's clearly cronenberg is is reading medical textbooks he's referencing all kinds of ideas he's following these these kind of through threads through everything um 
and Scanners has that. It has this, I mean, I thought one of the funny things about Schiffer's for me is that the first scene of nudity in a David Cronenberg feature <laughs> film is a murder autopsy. It's not like something yeah. sexual at all. It's, it's a, a man basically strangling a girl and then pulling off her clothes so that he can cut her open to try and kill the parasite in her which yeah it's a really it's a really weird way to um i guess like as as somebody who hasn't seen the film before like uh be introduced to uh the concept of this movie because you 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 just assume that this guy's like the bad guy right um but but really he's trying to um yeah get rid of this parasite uh but like there i think there's like if not all of them, almost all of them, there seem to be like boobs, like not necessarily like all over the place, but it's weird. It it almost feels like, like exploitation films or something like the way that they're just like there. And and it was, I mean, it's, it's interesting as, uh, because Scanners was produced by a company called Cinepix who were kind of in their infancy, (laughs) I believe at the time. And they were Cronenberg himself likened them to George uh, or Roger Corman's rather Roger Corman's uh, new world pictures. They were kind of looking to, it was, there was a renaissance at the time of kind of those big tax breaks for making films. So they were looking to make films that can make a product, profit and exploitation was really the way to go and that's what Cronenberg kind of went into and he and that's what what's interesting to me about the film is that it is an absolutely full-blooded exploitation film but it has the ideas backing it up there is this kind of unusual idea behind it this uh, parasites that can substitute as human organs as I mean it's an that's an already a more interesting idea than most exploitation films are going to start with and then he yeah. pushes the idea so far so yeah i mean it's it's very much i mean cinepix were responsible for the the first or i think they made several of the ilsa uh, she wolf of the ss films i mean they these were not uh, huh. you know so so they were no strangers towards very controversial subject matter Sean, what did you think of this movie? Well, um, I was thinking when you said that it became like really um, uh, successful at con or or, and whatever else after that, um, my first uh, thought was that it seems so easy to package. Like it's a genre film and it's um, it's not messy and it's very like adhesive to to its central like concept um which i appreciate about it like it's it's just like an in and out horror film um and i wonder if that plays into like how commercially appealing it was but um uh beyond that i which i which i i do that's like probably um one of the larger parts that i like about it but uh i i also like um the sexual element uh, like the way that I appreciate that Cronenberg uses horror to dissect like s- these social issues. Um, mm-hmm. and, and this is like super reductive, but as somebody who doesn't watch horror films, um, it reminds me in that way of, of it follows, um, as like this, this very sort of like simple, like metaphor or, um, a very simple dynamic about social um and sexual issues that that it just like goes to uh, that that is just sort of um employs from beginning to end uh so it's not like super complex but it sort of plays to ex- its strengths in that way yeah it's i think it follows as an interesting um kind of 
ancestor or descendant, I guess, of Cronenberg's sure. work in that. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, Cronenberg really was one of the first to push the body horror concept and the idea of, as you say, the, the doctor who kind of opens one of the early scenes murdering a woman, we kind of assume he's the bad guy. That's the established idea in most movies is the bad guy is a person or a creature that's moves around and is you know kind of you know independently visible whereas although there are these parasites that move around in the film realistically they live inside of people so it's this kind of internalized horror this internalized uh potential for your body to reject or or rebel against you or to or take over your conscious mind and turn you into something else and that's i mean obviously is a an allegory or could be taken as an allegory for any kind of venereal disease particularly or for cancer and i mean cronenberg's father died of cancer so i think that's kind of a a compelling possibility in looking at the trajectory of his career and his, his focus on uh biological transformation of people pushing to you know kind of creating new elements to people either positive or negative i I think it's worth like yeah it does infiltrate like everybody but um for a while like it's just like the men too and and it's just like what it looks like from like a bird's eye view is that these men are just like super sexually predatory well, yeah, and it, it all stems from one woman. Um, originally, the woman who's murdered originally, she was the original um, test subject. Host. And in your, yeah, host. And as she became sexually active or whatever, she slept with all these men. So there's this, idea, I guess, the idea that this female who was available within the high rise building kind of spread it very, very quickly as the men were, I guess, huh. unable, unable to resist that it's it's kind of they were they giving into an original the old uh um (laughs) adam and eve in the garden that's well yeah yeah, i guess except that i in this case a doctor did some weird shit beforehand (laughs) (laughs) the serpent yeah, it's yeah. one of the curious things actually that I, I found out about this film, which I never knew before. I was watching an interview with Cronenberg, is that I was only Cinepix developed this, and it took several years to get the government funding to put this together. Um, and apparently, it won't, during that time while it was still in development, Cronenberg visited Los Angeles and he he visited Hollywood to kind of you know check around there because he was trying to get his movie career off the off the ground and he met jonathan demi who at that point was a up-and-coming director himself he i mean he got his start with um i believe was with roger corman but he got a start in like women in prison films and so on caged heat and things like that a lot of people don't remember that when they think of silence of the lambs as probably his best known film um and cronenberg mentioned the script he had shivers that he was working on and jonathan demi said oh yeah i've read that and cronenberg was like how have you read this script you know, I haven't shown it to anyone down here. And Jonathan Demi revealed that Cinepix actually sent him the script and asked if he'd direct it at one point, and huh. Demi had turned them down. So in the the years that it took to get the script off the ground, it almost wasn't a Cronenberg film at all, which I think is an interesting what if for the the film timeline, because this really this film proved that the fil- that that these films could make a profit within the Canadian film industry because Canada prior to this it really Cronenberg is actually the genesis of a of a of a commercial Canadian film industry to some degree and certainly a, a um a kind of a Canadian film industry that can travel to other territories um prior to this really Canada was known for documentaries and for exper- experimental animation those were actually their primary right. film schools before that like Alan King and so on 
Um, so, and it, Quebec seemed to be the the genesis of this, the the province that kind of developed this thing. Um, and they start off with a couple of kind of skin flicks. I've I've not seen any of them. There's one called Valerie. I've I've never I've never seen it. Um, and it was from there that the tax break wrote that Dave Cronenberg came out of this and made these this horror film Shivers, which, uh, like I said, sold to over fifty territories. That, to a large degree, was kind of the kickoff for a commercial Canadian film industry that, for a long time, hadn't really existed because, really, America just south of the border, you know, the United States took care of commercial cinema. Canada took care of their own culturally kind of, uh, what do you say, concerned with specifically Canadian cultural films and so on. Um, so this is, it's interesting that Cronenberg, in a way, for how odd his films are, was kind of the, the birthplace of Canadian, uh, right. what do you say, uh, mainstream cinema, as mainstream as we allow it at any rate. Right. Yeah. I, one of the, one of the um, other interesting things that I wanted to bring up about the movie is that uh, it it's not like... It's a, I guess it's a typical. It plays like a typical horror movie, but it's very sparse in the way that it uses horror. Um, so it's a lot. It's a lot more like Doom rather than like these climactic scenes. Like I think even in memory, it's even like diluted to me. But when I was watching it, it was just like very sparse in between like spots where something actually happens or where we see like the parasite manifest through like somebody. Um, it doesn't happen very much. And it definitely doesn't happen for like like long periods of time in between each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's a, it's an interesting yeah measure. I guess it's uh, the film kind of it builds to I guess a kind of major crescendo, and the crescendo is kind of where we have really just one guy who's our, our supposed hero. Although it's interesting because the film doesn't really have a a very strong protagonist at all it's it's in fact it almost follows the parasite more than anyone else um so it's it's kind of i guess our hero gets surrounded and there's that great scene in the swimming pool at the end which is the conclusion which actually has some really impressive i think there's some fantastic shots in that it's a really creepy kind of i mean at this point it's kind of lapsed into or i guess developed into a zombie film nominally and you have the zombies kind of pouring into the water and Lynn right. Lowry who's kind of a cult horror film star herself and she plays a nurse in this film um, I mean she's kind of best known for I guess the crazies with George Romero and so on a few years prior to this she was kind of you know she's a known scream queen um, there's a wonderful shot of her emerging from the water which I think is a really fantastic shot but there's also all these kind of undead in the water it kind of brings to mind something like say Carnival of Souls or you know films like that it's it's like I say, for its sterility and its very cheap aesthetic, I mean, it really is a very cheaply made film. It doesn't have a, a polish to it at all. It does pull out a surprising amount of, of impressive images, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, Jake, I don't know how long ago you you watched it, but do you remember the, the ending very well? Do you want to speak to uh, sort of what it ends on and what that might imply? Yeah, it has a very um, kind of ends on a very dour note. How the society within the high rise has collapsed, and everyone is infected, and they all go about to their utilitarian jobs, and um, it essentially affect the world. Now that everyone inside the building has been affected, um, kind of reminded me of uh, John Carpenter's The Thing. How that seems to be like the assumed ending is that they're both infected and they're going to spread it to the world. Which I thought was very fascinating. 
Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing, you know, because you say it's a dour note, but I I almost feel with Cronenberg, there's almost a question. Like I say, there isn't really a, a set protagonist to this film. There's kind of a nominal honorary protagonist. Yeah, and I really doctor, like that. Doctor, but, but really, it follows the parasite to the point where the final shot, which is, I guess, all the infected people are just in their cars and they're just filing out of the, the, the underground garage and they're, they're heading into the city. And obviously, the inference, as you say, is that Every, the whole world is going to be taken over by this thing. It's too late. But I mean, there's almost this feeling made for Cronenberg. It's like, well, it's not the worst thing ever. I mean, so they're sex crazed maniacs, but I mean, they're <laughs> they're operating on a on a biologically viable level. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I guess like you say that there's no like central like protagonist or or like antagonist. More importantly, and there is like a humanism in that. And uh, going back to what. Um, Jake said earlier about like how the sterility of the like mise-en-scene um, transfers to I guess like the characters or I can't remember exactly how you phrase it but um, the like the humanism that we get out of a lot of Cronenberg's films are entirely derived from concept right like they're not they're not like um, he doesn't cultivate it in in like a visceral way but it's it's always like very heady. Yeah, I mean, I think Ronenberg is much more he's he's much more involved in ideas than people, and I think his films, generally speaking, are much more they're they're much more about following an idea than any given character or a type of person yeah. or or anything like that. So yeah, and I mean, I think that that is again, like I say, this film feels just out of the gate. It's it's almost like say Michael Mann's Thief, which is a film that just kind of it struck me how. It's everything Michael Mann is in his very first kind of major feature film. It's it's kind of almost jarring that it's like there wasn't didn't seem to be a ramp up or anything. It's just it's all there. Right. Well, uh, let's see how this transfers on to um, his next film, Rabid. Uh, Jake, yeah. do you want to talk about what that's about? Sure. So, <laughs> Rabid follows a young couple. Uh, a guy and girl named Hart and Rose. Rose is played by a porn star named Marilyn Chambers. Uh, <laughs> they're caught in a car accident wherein he is his arm car breaks. Crash. Car crash. Excuse me. A collision. <laughs> and um, where uh, his arm is broken and they're both sent to the hospital and she has uh, she goes into a coma. And um, while she's under, she undergoes this surgical operation wherein a n- like a tentacle needle thing is inserted into her armpit and it allows her to attack and infect other people and essentially turn them into zombies. And essentially it, it kind of repeats a lot of the same beats that happen in Shivers, which um, seeing Rabbit right after Shivers makes it a, a real big letdown for me. Yeah, um, And, uh, you yeah, know, there's a few interesting and neat moments in it but overall i think it's uh it's a it's definitely a lesser cronenberg film for me yeah it's it's interesting because rabbit is a much it's a much bigger film like shivers is in shivers is in a high rise rabbit is in montreal it's in the whole city and it's got a whole host of characters it's a much bigger film they go into the city into the malls into the streets they have host of extras and everything and yeah i it doesn't work as well for me. I agree with you. It's it's this is not one of my favorite Cronenberg. I think the, honestly, this to me feels like one of Cronenberg's actual weakest films on the whole. At least until he made a Dangerous Method, which I think uh, for me skew, for me skewed the the whole uh, the whole <laughs> oh. Cronenberg scale. I never saw um, that one. 
Yeah, it's uh, you're unless you want to see Kira Knightley doing a weird Russian accent while well, no one else is doing any accents, which is weird. Um, it's not really that important. It's it's I don't know. Maybe I'll revisit it sometime. Maybe I'm being overly mean on it, but no, um, you're not. I'm not. <laughs> there you go. So there you go. Don't watch uh, Dangerous Method. Um, but Rabbit is is interesting because yeah, I mean it's it's Marilyn Chambers was a big porn star because of behind the green door which was kind of a one of those so it was the along with deep throat really was like the huge film of the porn chic uh kind of movement in the 70s where literally hardcore porn films were playing in regular cinemas regular everyday people were going and seeing hardcore porn films it was a a short-lived and odd uh phase of cinema um she she has a look she has a look like a movie star she does. Um, um, she, yeah, she was originally an. Well, she or she was originally a model. Actually, funnily enough, you can see her in The Exorcist. Um, she is on because her one of her first big modeling jobs was on. Um, I can't remember. It was on a detergent. I can't remember. Ivory Snow, I believe, was the detergent. And there's actually a box of it in Ellen Burstyn's house in in the in The Exorcist. So weirdly enough, there you go. There's a porn star in in The Exorcist, but. Um, she she started in modeling uh, originally, and then she moved into acting. And it was actually literally she was she was hired because these porn movies were kind of up and coming, and um, they offered her role in the in Behind the Green Door as it, and it wasn't a, it wasn't like a role where she had to do any sex. It was literally it was just she had her she could either take one role that had I think a pay like I can't remember how much they were going to pay her, but. Um, there was that role, and they offered her that. But then they said, you know, if you're willing to have sex on camera, we have an, the main role, and there's way more money in it for that. And she actually she opted for the role where she had sex on camera, and it kind of became a huge hit. I'm sure she didn't see any of the money, just like a Deep Throat's actress didn't see any of the money from it. Um, but, you know, it kind of launched her as, as, a, as an icon. And she had this very, I guess, girl-next-door look was the way they always described her. Um, so Rabbit was was kind of very cleverly. Again, this is a real low budget movie. It was made under the same kind of tax incentives as Shiver and uh, stunt casting. I mean, it made a lot of sense. Uh, funnily enough, David Cronenberg actually his original suggestion was Sissy Spacek, which was pr- this is prior to Carrie, and uh, they they kind of that fell through uh, apparently because one what was she known from? Um, I'm not sure what Sissy Space I had made prior to that, actually, but um, apparently... Bad, of, Badlands? A little film called Badlands, maybe? Oh, Badlands. That's true. Badlands did come prior to... What was that, like, 73 or two or something? 73, yeah. Yeah, 73. So Carrie was 76. Um, so yeah, she she came through in, in Badlands, I guess, was probably... That might have been where, where, Cron- where Cronenberg saw her. And she was in The Waltons as well, briefly, apparently. Mm. Oh, um, yeah. But anyhow, one of one of the one of the producers apparently didn't like her Texan accent, so Sissy Spacek was out. <laughs> um, so uh, and they, I think, it was Ivan Reitman who it's worth mentioning. Ivan Reitman actually helped produce both of these films, uh, Shivers and Rabbit. Who, of oh, course, yeah. Ivan Reitman would go on to you know direct Ghostbusters and Ghostbusters. stuff. Like that. <laughs> a, few, yep. few, a few popular films you might have heard of, like and have a child who made a ton of terrible movies. That's true. Who won an Oscar for being the weakest link in one of his own movies? Yeah, that's Juno. <laughs> by the way. I like Juno, but everything that's wrong with the movie, Jason Whitman's <laughs> responsible for. And I think he won an Oscar that year, did he? And where he was uh, not, he maybe was nominated, but still, it's like probably that guy. Happy. That guy. I, I haven't seen Young Adult, which I've heard good things about, but man, every other movie of his is just I. 
cannot stand. <laughs> anyway, we're way off track. But, 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 but anyhow, yeah, so Ivan Reitman produced it, and apparently Ivan Reitman had, had seen or heard of Beyond the Green Door, so he recommended Marilyn Chambers. And, well, I mean, it's... It it's, makes a lot of sense. You don't really need an actress, but you've got this pre-made marketing. Um, ironically, the movie doesn't have a huge amount of nudity for her, and apparently Cronenberg was saying they had to keep telling her to, like, no, it's cool, you can keep your clothes on for this scene. So uh, <laughs> that was really convenient. And she's actually, she's not bad in the movie, but on the whole. She, they don't ask a lot of her, but she, I mean, she's really not bad. She She's had a few acting roles prior to this in, in non pornographic cinema anyway but it's it's kind of she's she's a credible enough lead but again like shivers rabbit she's really only an, an honorary protagonist she's the typhoid mary kind of character she's a carrier yeah. the vector for this this larger infection but the film branches out into all kinds of it is a much bigger cast than than shivers yeah it's kind it's of a precursor to species too if you think about it yeah it's true uh, species it, the sequel yeah, this <laughs> um, so species too. Zooming like, out a little so. bit, um, we're like at this time, whether in Quebec or Canada or in North America as a whole, um, were horror films like this more of a marketing draw than they are now? Like as far as like the segment that they took up. And the, the 70s was a huge era for American horror, particularly because of the rise of drive throughs and uh, also the relaxation of censorship. The Hays Code fell apart really in the late 60s, about 68 mm-hmm. or so. I mean, Arthur Hiller and um, oh, what's the name of the guy uh, who directed The Graduate? Uh, I can't remember. Arthur but anyhow, Penn, no, no, never mind. No, Arthur, Arthur Penn did um, or Arthur Hiller, Bonnie and Clyde, oh. which was one of the major ones. Hitchcock oh, also. I mean, um, Mike Nichols. Mike Nichols, that's the yeah. one. And um, so, like a few of those guys, kind of a newer, younger generation, were coming in, and they were basically the the Hayes Code, the Hayes Production Code, which had been developed in the early '30s originally, and was horribly out of date. Um, but it was a self censorship code that America, that that Hollywood imposed because they didn't want the federal government imposing censorship. So they said, okay, we can't have violence, you can't profit from crime, you can't have interracial couples because that's how outdated it was. Um, but those were covered like the same things. It's like no one can profit from crime, and you can't have interracial couples. Um, and you can't have a toilet flushing. That's absolutely out as well. Hitchcock broke that rule. Um, <laughs> yeah, but but from like literally the early 30s, uh, this production code was in place. And that's why while European and Asian cinema was exploring a lot of interesting things in the 50s and probably in the 60s, I mean, the French New Wave was full of people hopping in and out of bed with each other. Yeah. American cinema couldn't do that. Literally. Yeah, literally. Um, ah. American cinema couldn't, couldn't really cover that. So as the Hays Code fell apart in the 60s, it was never a officially rescinded it just people stopped listening to it um mm. that gave rise to um actually ironically enough since herschel gordon lewis died just uh, last week was like the father of the gore film and i mean he was one of those mm-hmm. guys he worked in the the drive-thrus and he just he realized that people would show up if you just have a film that's full of people getting horribly murdered um, and that was a good business roger Gorman. <laughs> And so on. And I mean, really, this, the Canadian model was copying what was happening in America. and was these drive-through films, cheaply made, uh, sleazy, kind of sensationalist. Uh, yeah. you, you make twenty, you make it for for a couple of thousand bucks, and you make a couple of more thousand bucks off the receipts, and then you just pump that into the next movie, and it, you know it all works out. And that was kind of the. And you know, if one of them really, you know, succeeds, then you made a load of money. You can pocket a little more and then make some more movies or expand your your operation so yeah horror has always been kind of the the it's it's in a way almost horror for cinema is almost feels like the way that 
pornography kind of fuels uh, innovation on the internet in a way. It's kind of like it's kind of this little engine that's kind of like tests things because it's got this like inbuilt market and horror cinema horror cinema fans apparently will show up for anything um and which is great in one way because they'll they'll vet so many ideas and things and they'll tell you what they like and what they don't like and they'll really respond to the stuff that they think is interesting so yeah i I guess this this film falls well in with that 70s kind of grindhouse aesthetic uh, of films I'd say uh, horror in the U.S., at, at least in the 70s, was mostly informed by the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and then everything after that just became violent yeah. serial killers that can't be stopped. Yeah, I mean, the, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was the first film that really, God, just made a shit ton of money and cost nothing, and that was really, that was kind of the mm-hmm. setup. Um, and yeah, I mean, everyone wanted to make that film, everyone, and also Easy, you know, it was strangely enough, on the on the opposite end of the more, I guess, establishing was movies like Easy Rider, um, which, again, cost almost nothing to make, but made massive amounts of money and won awards, unlike the horror films, Easy Rider was like establishment cinema, even though it was a countercultural piece, and it kind of led to Universal Studios started giving out million dollar contracts, and we got films like Tulane Blacktop and stuff that were just being basically given to... Right. Given mm-hmm. to people, just like make a movie for a million dollars because that's with no character change. name. Yeah, because because it's pocket change to the studio. But if it succeeds, like um, like Easy Rider succeeds, that's fantastic. You know, it's, right. and worst case scenario, you know, if Universal wanted to market a film, it'll probably make a million dollars back at nothing else. So you know, whatever. And there was like the occasional Jaws. Yeah, well, the mid '70s started to, to get the the blockbuster yeah. Star Wars and and Jaws, uh, and then as cinema died. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Spielberg and Lucas well, got together and they fucked up cinema for everyone forever. But tell, tell me if I'm wrong, but uh, horror films, um, whether today or um, in the '60s um, or in between, uh, but but are sort of like known for uh, manifestations of latent. Um, not just sexual, but like social dynamics, right? Like they're known for like uh, like manifestations of pent up. Uh, aggression of different types. Well, yeah, I, mean, I think there's a strong Freudian element to a lot of horror. There's there's very uh, often very direct in, uh, invocation of Freudian mores of of particularly mm-hmm. sexual elements. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, horror cinema feels kind of it's it's intrinsically kind of a, a testing ground for subversive ideas, and I mean, that, I think that's why Cronenberg, in a way, it was a very natural. Yeah. trajectory for him to move yeah. into horror because his idea of of biological mutations of of i guess uh, of mutants of humans kind of mutating in in curious fashion and exploring basic ide- you know ideas of human evolution and human personhood and identity in the context of the human body itself changing, which, of course, I mean, Videodrome is entirely about that. It's about the mechanisms of film itself transforming people internally, changing their consciousness, which, you know, is kind of the, the ultimate metatextual kind of... It's a, for me, it's almost the reader for everything that David Cronenberg has made before and after, yeah. which is one of the reasons why I really like that film so much. So, yeah, I think there, there's, you know, car cinema, is, it's a really good testing ground for odd ideas and since they're very low budget if you know it's kind of it's easy for someone to just kind of throw the money there and they make something that's absolutely deplorable it's not you know it's not really the end of the world no one lost a huge amount of money on it what what what, um what i was thinking is um and like i am the last person to care about like intent like authorial intent 
uh, as, as far as like quality goes. So this isn't like a, a stamp of Cronenberg's quality, but um, what seems apparent to me watching these movies is that like, so he's working in this genre where it is about subtextual um uh, like sexual aggression and, and different things like that. But here's somebody who's like willfully wielding those things and messing around with those things. Like it seems very apparent that this is somebody who understands the genre, like almost like naturally and mm-hmm. uh, is, is doing things um, like there's like uh, in rabid, there's a scene like where she goes to the cinema, which um everything that bookends that scene, this like, uh, location shooting is just like, it just looks wonderful. Um, and, uh, there's a scene where, uh, the woman who, um, I don't know what to call but she's infested already, but she's sort of like contained. And then this guy like hits on her and asks to sit by her and just wants a couple of handfuls of popcorn, wink, wink. And, um, and then, and then like, so he starts like, um, uh, filling her up. And then there's this close-up of like the apparatus that infects other people, and it just like it just becomes aroused, but it's from her. And there's this weird reversal of sexual metaphor where she's penetrating him, and her she's getting aroused as he is getting like emotionally aroused. And there, I don't know, like there's never a shortage of sexual metaphor in his films, but it all seems very. It, it doesn't seem just like visceral, like um, it doesn't seem like a projection, you know. Yeah, it's it's curious. Um, Cronenberg, like again, not to bring back up like something like Stereo again, again his first like thirty-five mil film, but I mean that film explores a series of uh, heterosexual, homosexual, polyamorous kind of relationships, and this is like I think he made that film in the late sixties huh. or maybe early seventies. Just you know, kind of it's because it, he, the film is about kind of people with telepathy, and it's about this expanded consciousness, and they start to expect, experiment sexually. And um, so, Shivers has similar elements that I talk about. I mean, broaching like breaching straight into pedophilia and uh, uh, incest and so on, uh, among other things. This kind of unfettered human sexuality, kind of. Ex- expanding in all directions completely detached from any kind of decorum um i think rabbit has that as well and you're correct i like i i think marilyn chambers character she's sexually predatory as a woman but she's preyed upon by men and indeed like her first her first attack it's actually the first guy that she she attacks is blamed for trying to they they consider she's in a coma at the time she wakes up from the coma and she attacks him that when he's found bleeding and kind of stuttering and doesn't really know what happens they they assume he got drunk and he sexually assaulted her so there's kind of this unusual kind of mixing of of sexual mores it's and absolutely it's transgressive or subversive kind of an idea um which again i think transfers into something like videodrome uh deborah harry's phil a character in that who's kind of into bondage and so on she's a sexually aggressive female sexually empowered female um and he he Kronberg seems to be absolutely at home with that he has no problem exploring that in whatever fashion you know takes yeah, obviously through like, the crash he's the least like he's like the least sexy sexual director he's like I feel like especially these first like two films, it, it's like the cinematic version of like the grad student coming up to you in a bar and like lecturing you on, on like progressive sexual mores. <laughs> and, and that is there. There is an intellectual veneer to his films, so I think which I think works really well, particularly in Shivers. Um, I think it, Rabbit actually I think tones it down a little bit. Rabbit in some ways 
is le- it's a less unusual film, I think, than Shivers. Yeah. Shivers has yeah. more of a it does have more of a kind of an intellectual element to it, more of an academic concept to at least the introduction of it. Rabbit feels to fall more to a kind of a standard zombie kind of structure. Sure. I mean, and it's coming in the wake of Romero's. Uh, Day of the or Dawn of the Dead had come out at this point, um, and Night of the Living Dead, obviously. So I guess it kind of it fell easily enough into that with somewhat of a sexual veneer. Um, but yeah, you know, Rabbit is is it's more it feels more straightforward, but it does have those unusual touches to it that kind of get you wondering. I mean, she basically has this weird barbed penis in her armpit that steals. <laughs> It's weird how men. disconnected that thing is. Like it, it's like the whole movie. I was like, "Where is that coming from?" Because it, you know, it, it matters. Yeah. Like, like what body part that's coming from, and, and it always seems disconnected from from their body. And it's it just is, kind it's, of weird too, because yeah. it's just scenes of her hugging people to death. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's true. It's it's not even yeah. It's it's not a like a, a sexual orifice per se, but it, yeah. I mean, she really just holds on to people. It's not like they have to even indulge in anything sexual, but it's a clearly through the framing of, of what leads up to it, I mean, with men sexually kind of approaching her. Um, like it's clearly a sexual act, but yeah, it's, it's basically she just hugs people and then stabs them in the armpit or in the neck or whatever and then does her, steals their, steals their, their essence and infects them. And if they survive her attack, they become effectively rabid and they, they whatever choke up green foam and bite people and go crazy and eventually martial law has to be introduced which is i i guess where the film fails a little bit for me is this it's it's sense of scope and scale as the city succumbs to the terror of this this what they they don't really they never if i actually the film they never understand what caused it it's never really there's a few small yeah. characters work out that this this one woman played by Marilyn Chambers is the vector for this infection and, and where it originated from, from this experimental surgery that was done on her. Um, but basically no one else knows. It's just, it's a medical outbreak and they eventually, it comes down to people with rifles, uh, like gunning people down the streets and throwing them in the back of garbage trucks. It's almost like something from like Peter Watkins, the war game of like this vision of a society completely in collapse, but it's sort of, it doesn't ring entirely true to me. It just seems oddly it doesn't feel fully fleshed out, really. I mean, yeah. it, it just feels like it tips over into excess a little bit too quickly. Well, I think the the with the military gunning people down, I think the best scene in the movie is where that Santa Claus is shot to death when they're trying to. <laughs> uh, it is, but that soldier in the mall. God damn, that soldier just opens fire with an automatic weapon in a crowded <laughs> area. Actually, that dude's getting court-martialed. And, and the uh, Santa's little helper. Yeah. And Santa's little helper with her incredibly short skirt. I th- did the set designers think they were working on a porno? Because that's really know. weird. To, like, just to explain for anyone who hasn't seen it, there's just a scene with Santa and he, there's a female Santa's assistant for the mall Santa because it's Christmas in Quebec. And uh, she is just wearing this incredibly short skirt. Um, <laughs> so I, I mean, maybe the dad's like bending like, over at one point and yeah, it's <laughs> yeah, putting kids on the lap and everything. Yeah. It's like, uh, yeah, I it's don't all think like non sequitur too. But yeah, um, I don't think anyone photo with Santa based on that scenario. I have a feeling she'd be the one capturing most of the attention. But whatever, she ends up uh, her Santa gets gets gunned down yeah. as collateral damage as a rabbit person runs amok. Where this, where this, um, where this like kind of falls apart to me is like, so I watched this in two parts, uh, almost exactly split, and I was like sort of on board the first 
half like I wasn't loving it, but I was just like you know sort of seeing where it was going, giving it a chance, and the right. second half just totally didn't um, cash in on any promises, and it was just like I definitely lost interest in the second half of this, and I. I think the like the last act there is like I can see some like emotional gears turning with like um the the main woman being uh, infected yet like she wants like her and this other dude like are trying to like they want to keep like this this emotional bond and she's like well we can just you know keep it over the phone and not physical and there is something like really interesting in that um and then he breaks down after after uh, she dies but or she's like brutally murdered by that dude, but um, it's yeah. just like sort of like the dots aren't connected, and and it's definitely it definitely seems like a messy version of Shivers. It does. Uh, something yeah. else. Something else to mention about these movies, which I actually I only recently found this out, is that um, the special effects for both uh, Shivers and Rabbit were done by a guy named Joe Blasco, who was a makeup artist and a special makeup artist. But um, apparently, Shivers the the kind of there's a couple of scenes where they have the internal parasites kind of pulsating under the skin and there's one scene where Barbara Steele the the gothic horror queen who has a role in shivers is making out with another woman and you can see the parasite kind of bulging out of her the neck in her neck there's like a bulge in her neck and it transfers to the other woman so they to show you that the parasite is passing apparently that was the first use of they weren't actually bladders they were just condoms that's what uh <laughs> That that's what Joe Blasco used, and he was using air-filled condoms under a latex sheet to emulate skin. But apparently, that was the first use of that, and that would go on to become obviously the the absolute the the kind of the textbook for every '80s special effect for like American Werewolf in London, huh. all of that kind of special effects. So for almost no money, that was what. And Joe Blasco was a Hollywood player. He you know he kind of came up specifically apparently to work with Barbara Steele because he was a huge fan of her from stuff like Mario Bava's uh, Black Sunday and other amazing, I mean Barbara Steele has worked with everyone So, but it was just kind of interesting to me that the, as low-fi as the special effects look and shivers, they were actually incredibly they, the, the, the echoes, the ripples of those along the, the timeline of cinema, they pretty much set the template for the next 20 years of horror cinema. Interesting I mean, like that's that's a really interesting tidbit. Um, and coming coming out of this movie, like these two combined, I was definitely like, okay, like Cronenberg's vision is hopeless. Like, you know, like the, considering the end of Shivers as being like this epidemic is is um, it, it continues to spread throughout the community or more communities and then the end of rabbit um wait is it the end of rabbit or something else where she's just like thrown into like a trash compactor yeah yeah in in a way yeah she she and she engineers her own death marilyn chambers character she becomes under she because for the it's interesting actually for the longest time in the film she's not really aware that she's she's aware of this this rabid uh disease that's spreading throughout kind of canada but she doesn't know that that's related to her attacks um she doesn't really connect the two because she's immune to the infection she's kind of a vector for it so it's kind of she she tests it towards the end of the film she locks herself in a room with someone and she attacks them but keeps them alive and they sure enough turn into a rapid person and kill her and it's and then she's just unceremoniously she's found on the street a dog is kind of sniffing at her dead body and she's just unceremoniously 
tipped into a garbage compactor and it's kind of like and it, it no and it's at that point we realize that they'll even if as the primary vector maybe they can contain the outbreak but they'll never know where it came from or how it started right. at that point it's kind of it's become mute it's so much bigger than her now and there's no hope <laughs> Yeah, yeah, there's no hope. It's it's not exact as as much as because um, unlike I, I joke about shivers being almost like the parasite wins, and maybe that's not the worst thing. But Rab- rabbit really has there's there's no silver lining there because uh, it's not like the people who are infected are having a good time to just run around the place biting people and acting right. crazy. They're... All right, well let's move on to uh, nineteen seventy. Nines the brood. So he basically made like a movie every two years, which is, which is yeah. Uh, and I, I think yeah. a lot of that was waiting on funding. I'm not sure about the brood. I think the brood was uh, the, uh, so, as we'll, we'll probably discuss. The brood feels a lot more professional than what came before it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, it you're not sure as far as like the the funding. Mm. Yeah, I, mean, I was just going to say also what's great about most of his movies, if not nearly all of them is that they all clock in right around 90 minutes so even if you're not enjoying it you're not wasting too much time which is true yeah he's got the woody allen factor working for him there like 90 (laughs) minutes and we're done he's the woody allen of body horror (laughs) yeah except scanners but we'll get to that um yeah i i definitely appreciated that as someone who watched like almost three in one day um so the brood uh let's talk first about uh, J- uh jack you mentioned um sort of a change up in um his company what how does that look so yeah the the brood seems to be this is cronenberg has kind of arrived i guess uh, shivers and rabbit made money they they weren't particularly well received in in canada where they were mostly derided as filth but uh, his mo- his films were making money abroad so he was still able to get work and the brood seems to be I don't know the the exact specifics of the production of this film, but it's certainly um, we notice uh, this is his first film that's shot by Mark Irwin, who would go on to become a cinematographer for a number of films. Subsequently, uh, it's scored by Howard Shore, who obviously has gone into a massive career, but Howard Shore has worked with David Cronenberg uh, in so many of his films throughout the years. Um, so um, it's it's kind of this has it is a much more. It's also got Oliver Reed, I mean, who's kind of a name star. Uh, like in a genuine star, uh, there mm. you know Marilyn Chambers is stunt casting, um, but this is like Oliver Reed's a real actor that people know about. Um, so the the brood feels to be him kind of uh, egging out his own real space, kind of eking out his own space in in kind of real real cinema, I guess, rather than schlocky horror. Um, this is kind of on the threshold in the late seventies, where there you know in the seventies was there were a couple of real. Um, kind of died in the wool horror films that were you know had a kind of established respected casts and so on i guess i don't the brood wasn't really in league with something like the exorcist in terms of its its presence but it had that kind of a pedigree that it was if it feels like a real film it feels much more the the look of it is much more lush the cinematography is much the the camera work is much more staid it's i mean i know rabbit and shivers were were shot in i believe shivers was shot in 15 days i mean which is incredible wow. that they managed to put together a film in that short amount of time and that it uh, looks like that and that it looks yeah. and that it looks that well but like the brood it does not feel at all rushed it feels like a very staid 
production, there's much more dynamic lighting. There's kind of you know play, interplay between light and shadow in the, in some of the the rooms and so on. It just it it's much bigger film. And I'm even looking at it on the IMDb. They say the the estimated budget is about 1.4 million Canadian dollars. And I'd say between yeah, you could add the budgets for Shivers and Rabbit, and you would only come up with a <laughs> fraction of that much money. Yeah, and and you you've seen like we've we've all seen like um, the director who uh, sort of like uh, gets out of their small like indie phase and gets like the big budget and doesn't really know what to do with it. And uh, this is the exact opposite where the, this is like definitely more polished, but it's also like assured and it, and he has more control over the storytelling. And not only like does he have this good company of of a composer and a cinematographer, cinematographer that really complement him really well, but um, he's much better at creating a community of characters than he was on Rabid with, you know, this budget intact. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think I think the brood has a. It's got a much more traditional structure. It does have a protagonist. It has an antagonist. It has a love interest, even which you know are things that Cronenberg feels like he's toying with in the previous films, but doesn't really. They're never put together the way you'd expect. So th- this film, in a way, feels much more traditional, and yet. I mean, when you dig into it, like its its central idea is not particularly traditional. I mean, he takes on motherhood, the most uh, esteemed and treasured kind of tenet <laughs> of, of all of society, and basically turns it into a horrific freak show for revenge, which is a, an interesting uh, take on things. Yeah. Um, so th- uh, this going into this, um, all I knew was that. Uh, Adam Myros, who uh, I forgot to mention, thinks that uh, Rabbit is better than Shivers. Uh, wow. Probably minority there. Contentious, contentious decision. He should yeah. be here to defend himself. Wow. He also, well, maybe I'll bring this up on the next episode, but um, The Brood, he also thinks uh, might be better than Videodrome. Okay, well, that's just going too far. <laughs> he also said, had some uninteresting things to say about... Um, scanners which we'll get to in a second but what do, what are your what's your experience and your thoughts of of the brood jake so the brood is one of the latter cronenberg films i've seen like i watched most of his other films before finally seeing this um one and um i really like it i think it's uh it's seeing it after shivers and rabbit again it's really just an extension of his craft and how you give him more money he can make of he can still you know pull off his vision and it's a very like dread inducing very atmospheric film and and quite intriguing to watch at times and the performances especially uh, oliver reed is just fucking amazing in this movie i love him so much i think it it really adds credence to um cronenberg as a filmmaker Uh, he's not just going out and making these what could be perceived by some as just a low budget horror film but he's actually a he's a man with talent and i think brood helps establish his credibility and starts to cement him in, you know, the horror genre. Yeah, I think it's, it's an interesting... Um it's an interesting film in that sense in that this is like weirdly enough in a way this is actually a very personal film for Cronenberg which is strange yeah. considering it's it's uh, content I mean I guess the storyline for anyone who hasn't seen the film is about a man who's essentially has his wife is undergoing this kind of experimental group therapy and group therapy is again something that's seen as early as um 
as early as, as stereo again, one of Cronenberg. And he, he actually, even his, his very earliest 16mm films, like From the Drain and uh, Transfer, his very first films are all about psychiatric therapy um, and kind of talking, talking-induced therapy. So um, the opening scene of, of The Brood, which is Oliver Reed, who's this experimental psychologist, kind of in this talk therapy with, with one of his, his uh, patients, is, Mike. goes like, yeah, Mike, it goes, it goes right <laughs> back to the, the, the very beginning of Cronenberg's film career, which is kind of unusual, and uh, Oliver Reed's character—he's—he's uh, he's basically got this experimental therapy, and this woman is undergoing it, and she's in the middle of a bitter kind of—it's not a divorce per se, but I guess she's estranged from her husband, and they have a child, a young girl. The husband is looking after the young girl, and he's concerned about her. It appears that the wife may be beating the girl on their meetings at the at this this clinic, so he's trying to maybe kind of cut the woman out, cut his wife out of his life, you know, wondering if she's safe or whatever. And then these murders start occurring, uh, which are being basically committed by these weird midgets in anoraks or snow are they, suits. Are they also the mm-hmm. ones that are doing like the, the, like the harm to the little girl's flesh? Yeah, I'm. I'm not sure. Uh, the the end of the film suggests that she may be manifesting the same sickness as as her mother did. That it might be hereditary. Um, so it's difficult to tell if maybe it's not psychologically inflicted by herself as part of. I mean, the, there's this theme through the film, I guess, of psychological trauma manifesting physically, and then of course the big hook of the film. Uh, spoiler alert: is that the the woman is basically. Uh, birthing these these deformed children <laughs> who then kind of head and and it's not not birthing, birthing in a completely unnatural fashion that they're like a weird external cocoon that's kind of growing out of her abdomen um and they're they they carry out her they they basically enact her feelings she doesn't command them but they if she is angry towards someone they will go out and they will harm that person physically and she doesn't really have control over them but they're her children and she loves them um so it's kind of a very unusual thing but i say this is a personal film for cronenberg because he was going through a divorce at the time and this is really this is how you twist the knife in a messy divorce i guess this is his breakup album yeah basically this is and it's kind of a douchey breakup album of that (laughs) except except that it fits in very well with his other work well that's what we mentioned earlier when if a horror film could stem from something that's you know more social and this certainly can and does as evidence from the divorce and he also had a child with his first wife as well yeah interesting yeah uh, um and saying that she's giving birth to these um these uh, dwar- uh, little people is putting it it's like cleanly as sure, possible. Sean, Sean has positive comments to say about the birthing scenes in this movie. I will I say like, they... like these ho- like these are like horror films, but uh, I'm sure there's something about like um, them being 40 years old, and also the fact that Cronenberg is just um, naturally more of a cerebral filmmaker than he is um, driven by shock, but. Mm-hmm. Um, these this moment where the where the the wife slash mother gives birth to another one through like chewing open her like um, cavity thing her egg like, sack her yeah her like extra uh, womb and then like licking off its like natal blood is like the most <laughs> disgusting thing like one of the it, most disgusting things I've ever seen it, it was fascinating and like you yeah. Know, it's it's um, curious because I mean it's it's 
purely it's a in a way it's a very natural replication of nature it's it's, it's not <laughs> yeah. human, it's not human nature but it's animal nature there's something very primal to it that yeah it's essentially and there's something really great about uh like that like it's easy to appreciate cronenberg's um the way that he uses like body horror whether it's whether it's a representation that's realistic or not doesn't really matter, but the way that it happens is very like it, it just has its own stamp to it, where it's just like very interesting, and it doesn't matter whether whether it like looks real or not because it takes on a form of its own, and it's just like bizarre. Um, I don't know, it, it's like his own like little signature, but yeah, when she she gives birth to that thing, it was I was just like I was sitting there on the couch by myself in the apartment, <laughs> just being like, what. We know what on? image to put on the the, the but, cake we're gonna buy you for for your birthday. <laughs> yeah, but but uh, speaking of like how um, uh, mental trauma manifests physically, uh, I think that was like probably my favorite scene of the film, or like the the most like it was almost Hitchcockian in in, in its um, suspense is this moment where the doctor is trying to rescue the daughter like you're not first of all there's there's a moment where you're not sure so basically the doctor sets up the husband to go and like soothe the wife so that the doctor can go rescue their child from amongst these um these uh, little people who are murderous um but they won't attack if if the mother is kept um tranquil and so at at one point, you don't know whether the doctor is, is sincere or not or if he's using the husband for some other purpose. But it turns out that he really is trying to rescue this daughter. Um, and he's you, – you know, you're just watching the, the little people and they are tranquil. And then it's going back and forth with the husband who's just like placating the, the wife and acting like he's really interested in, in her happiness and – and wanting to be with her again, but he's just doing that as a ploy. And it's, it's the more I think about it, the, the more Hitchcockian it seems where it's just like this flashback from, or not flashback, but this, this back and forth between, um, these two things that are contingent on one another. Mm-hmm. And then the, <laughs> the little people get upset and yeah. It's <laughs> interesting. Yeah. It's yeah. It, it kind of follows in the mold. Cause uh, as I say, it's, it's the, the, her offspring, her progeny, become violent based off of her own emotions and it's not that she actively commands them or she she yeah. never there's there's no point in the film where she actually talks to one of them or gives one of them an order they just carry out her own subliminal constellations yeah yeah exactly. so so they're yeah they're evocations of her will kind of that are able to act externally from her so yeah that's kind of and it kind of plays back to again like Schaefer's and rabbit this idea that the the villains and the people in in cronenberg's films are not they're not villains in the traditional sense they're not kind of um, malevolent actors they're very much either creatures that are working to a biological thesis or a biological kind of urge or they are people with a certain intellectual in- inquiry that they are following through to a logical conclusion so you know they're kind of they're they're in the uh, kind of a mad doctor sense almost you know and in this one it's actually oliver reed it's there's a question of how culpable he is because mm-hmm. he knows about he knows about her weird offspring and he houses them they have literally the upstairs of a wood cabin is, is just full of these little odd little and they're all like they have cleft palates and they look a bit <laughs> odd um 
and uh, it looks like they have like much... Nixon masks on. Yeah, it, it, it's pretty strange. <laughs> not 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 the greatest special effects for their makeup. They just kind of like slap a lot of stuff on their face. So they look kind of inhuman. Uh, it's kind of reminiscent a little bit, I think, of Nicholas Rogue's "Don't Don't Look Now." The kind of the the little pint sized terror <laughs> of that film kind of extrapolated into something different. There's very little else in common with those between the two films, I guess. The trauma of losing a child in "Don't Look Now." turns into something much more immediate and unusual in this film. Um, yeah. But yeah, there's kind of an interesting element to it, I suppose, that, that carries through these... Um, I guess his next film, Scanners, would is... Actually, you know, you know what? Even in that, that Michael Ironside's character is kind of... He's, he's, he's an evil genius in a way, or he's, he's a, um, a mad scientist following through on his own thesis, so he's not really malicious in the same way that, say, some guy who's just trying to get rich off kind of right. hurting or whatever so it's kind of interesting i guess the the ethics of a cronenberg film are much they're much different to that of most other horror films that just have kind of a, a just Very insane killer. yeah you know kind of just a bad person a socially poisonous entity that that hurts people in cronenberg's film the these entities may hurt people but maybe because they represent another facet of people maybe the next evolution of people and so on he's explored explored various elements of that so kind of an interesting element i think that gets a bit more like sanguine as as like you said scanners but even like into videodrome and we'll talk about that but um a couple questions so what um what is the doctor's role in her being the way that she is? Like, why does she create these, these little guys? Um, why does she have, why is she going through what she's going through? Is is it, it's not all because of the doctor's therapy, is it? You know, I, I don't have a clear answer for that really. I don't know, Jake, do you, do you have a specific take? I, I think it's sort of implied that it is that is what he's doing is okay. that through her therapy this is her, the only way to get better is to just kind of I don't know essentially birth the evil externally okay. out of her somehow <laughs> I don't know yeah I, I yeah. yeah I don't I don't think there's I mean yeah it's because the daughter in the final shot she did they the final shot of the film is zooming in on the daughter who's been horrifically traumatized basically because of the violence between her parents that they've, you know, as, as is manifested, essentially the, the divorce, the, the, the uh, degradation of relations between her parents has left her completely traumatized as a, as a child, um, which is very straightforward. Of course, it's manifested in a very oblique and unusual manner within the brood. But um, the, the final shot of the film is kind of the camera zooming in on the daughter's arm as she's been driven away and she yeah. looks completely catatonic. She's in shock. But there's these little sores or warts on her arm which are hark back to earlier in the film where various uh, patients of of oliver reed's character have developed these mm-hmm. kind of external wounds i don't think I, like I, michelle I don't think that, yeah I, I don't think um cronenberg has you know clarifies in the film the exact link between his what seem to be purely psychiatric techniques how right. they manifest in a physical a physical thing. I guess that's maybe a leap of faith we're gonna have to take on that. I don't think there's then, a specific. Then there's also like point. there's then there's also the dude who um, the the actor plays a, a big role in Scanners, I believe. But um, the dude who looks like Jerry Lewis, um, who who has the uh, neck plasm cancer thing um, that's like wrapped with a towel. That's right. Yes. 
Uh, yeah, it's it's. I'm not I'm not exactly sure how, you know, if if that links in together with with um with the central thesis. It feels like he wanted like that Cronenberg. Like I say, talk therapy is something that kind of featured a lot in Cronenberg's earliest work. Um, but it was always manifested something unusual in his earliest films. They, there was kind of a in like in transfer and uh, from the drain, which I think was his very first sixteen mil film. So it's kind of a a weird distrust between doctor and patient and the setting for both of those films is absolutely absurd. I mean, from the drain takes place in a bathtub and it's, it's two men who both seem to be insane, but they are, they have an absurd conversation that then manifests in something actually literal happening based on their discussion. That's, you know, it's an absurdist piece essentially. Um, and then stereo has essentially, telepaths and they have talk therapy and stuff and it's 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 kind of like um i guess it's kind of a regular thing except they're all telepaths and telepathy is a real thing and it has the fantastic uh suggestion that there's a canadian academy for erotic inquiry which i really want to be a real thing <laughs> um you know so i guess it kind of it harks back to this idea of talk therapy being a possible jumping off point for new experimental medicines but there's it, it I don't know how he broaches the the, I guess the the cerebral to the physical, and I maybe it's not right, something yeah. he was specifically interested in because yeah, um, the brew doesn't seem to have a specific physiological linking oh. point like rabbit yeah. and shivers does. There's always like sort of weird points in in movies that like, <clears throat> um, the, where you have to give it liberties, right? Like uh, movies mm-hmm. that are very meta- metaphorical, where like certain liberties just serve the purpose of the narrative. Um, and don't serve the purpose of the metaphor or central concept, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I, w- I would agree with that. I think I think uh, the brew does require, I think, a certain leap of faith to me, and it's yeah. not a problematic one for me personally. Sure. Yeah, All right. Uh, well, we- let's move on uh, for the sake of time to um, 1981's The sk- I mean, unless unless anybody had anything else to say about the brood. Just a quick comment that at the end, yeah. the bumps on the girl's arms, it's another uh, downer ending from Cronenberg. <laughs> That's out true. to doom humanity. Oh, and I was going to ask, like, especially you, Jack, as someone who's, like, um, I guess more seasoned with this movie, like, so um, where do you see it in his catalog? And, uh, well, well, first of all, do you put it pretty highly in his catalog? Um, I'm I'm a little mixed on The Brood. I think it's... I, I like the central idea. I think that maybe it's not as... It's it's somewhere in between the kind of really primal body horror that he he explores and shivers, and maybe move more in Videodrome and the very cerebral elements that he'd bring into play later on stuff like Dead Ringers and and Crash. Um, Videodrome, I think, stra- is is the the film that straddles both the the visceral and the cerebral. I think they're both there right. in equal measure. That's kind of an unusual film. Uh, I do like The Brood. I think I think it's a certainly I think it's it's an important kind of piece in Cronenberg's career. It's not one of the films of his that I return to that often. Okay. It's kind of it's it's one of the films I guess it's kind of it's got a, I think the great reveal at the near the end where she kind of pulls open her top to reveal this weird yeah. egg sack <laughs> is kind of you know that that's something Cronenberg fans are going to look at. But well, um, and it's like I mean, coming back to the whole, like, divorce thing, like, that's, like, very, like, outside of the movie, this is very extra textual, but it's just, like, sort of, like, oh, you want to be with me? Like, let me show you all of my flaws. 
and him being like, yeah, I don't want to be a part of that. I, I would, If nothing else, I imagine if it was a bitter divorce, I suspect this film did not help things even a tiny bit. <laughs> Yeah, and um yeah, and who knows like what their child plays like uh, emotionally between them and and how that fits in between them or ooh, yeah. Um I, I would like to be a fly on that wall um in, in the late 70s, but um okay, so uh moving on to scanners um from 1981. Um yeah, so uh Jake, do you want to talk to us about what Scanners is and and a bit about your experience with it? Absolutely. So Scanners, um, first of all, Scanners probably contains probably one of the most famous images in cinema ever, which is the <laughs> yeah, exploding head. Yeah, I had head. no idea it was from this movie going in, which I really appreciated, but I've seen it like gifed here and there. But Yeah, it's, it's yeah. all over the internet, but I don't know how many people know that it's from this, and I'm glad you discovered this. Um, anyway, Scanners is like an X-Men film, but good. And yeah. about, uh, <laughs> this company is basically... Hey, X-Men 2 is pretty good. Oh, yeah, that's fair. I'll give you that. And um, so this company called Consec has um, has these... I don't know if they're genetically altered or they're just born with powers. People called Scanners, where they have very exceptional supernatural uh, telekinetic powers. They can do stuff with their minds and um, there's uh, this one scanner who has gone rogue. He's played by uh, Michael Ironside. And so the scanner company uh, hires, or not hires, but they um, seek out and find uh, this good scanner um, played by Stephen Lack, who is basically <laughs> sent on a mission to find and kill the rogue scanner. And a uh, whole bunch of crazy shit happens. And um, I really like uh, Scanners. It's not a Cronenberg film I return to frequently, but I do appreciate it in his oeuvre. And um, it's one that I saw early on when I was seeking out his career. I think I may have watched it like first after like I saw Videodrome and then The Fly and then I saw Scanners. And I'm like, okay, this is great. But uh, yeah, Scanners, I think um, I think it lulls in a few places, but when it's focused on Michael Ironside doing evil, I think that's where it's at its best. And the head explosion and the finale are amazing, if you ask me. And I, I will say that Michael Ironside <clears throat> looks a lot like Jack Nicholson light. Um, yes. Both both with his um his like receding hairline and as like an old bald man, very strong resemblance of uh, Jack Nicholson. Anyway. Yeah. Michael Ironside, he's he's terrific in this, um, but yeah, no, I really like Scanners. I uh, think it's a very interesting film. Jack, what do you? How do you feel about Scanners? Well, well, first off, I say if you ever want to see a film in which someone telepathically hacks a computer via telephone line, uh, <laughs> that this seems is, amazing too. It is. It's a brilliant scene. Um, but like, what in the hell? Um, but like, <laughs> this it's it's kind of scanners for me is an interesting one because I I also I do enjoy the film, but it is. It's it's an odd film. It it to me it's a weird. It's got a weird pacing. It kind of the acting is very stilted. It feels very clinical. Almost like it's almost like a Robert Bresson film at points. The actors seem to be almost pulled back. Like except for Ironside, who really is he goes in with gusto as the basically right. as the the evil. But essentially, the film is about people with with telepathic 
you know, powers, the power to explode people's heads with the power of their minds. Um, and Michael Ironside is essentially the character who has just, who there's two schools of this. There's one guy who's kind of like, okay, I can do this and I need to help, you know, protect people from other people who can do this if they're evil. And Michael Ironside is a guy who's like, I can blow people's heads up with my mind. I'm going to take over the world because we're better than humans. Because you know, so so it's kind of this this dialectic there, which is very much like X Men essentially. Um, but yeah, it's it's a really interesting film. In in a way, it's almost I think I would say with the Dead Zone, it's possibly Cronenberg's most straightforward commercial film. Um, it's like it, it, aside from it's very odd. Uh, kind of, it's got some elements of obviously body horror that Cronenberg you know can't help but invest in but it's kind of it's it's fairly straightforward good versus yeah. evil tale in a lot of ways much more so than i think the the prior three films we've discussed and um, it's also interesting actually that this film came right in the wake i guess within just two or three years of brian de palma's film the fury which was also about uh people with telekinetic or telepathic powers who could hurt other people with their minds and um, this is better i think honestly the fury is like a weird bold and the beautiful general hospital soap opera film um that features people with telepathic powers it's kind of a very odd film in its own right yeah. actually i think but honestly uh, to me a little bit of a snooze fest at times yeah. when people aren't people yeah, are furious the fury is pretty dull except for when like cassavetes is on screen yeah, it, they do He's blow really up. It. Yeah, they do blow up John Cassavetes, which is something that Cassavetes never accomplished <laughs> in his own cinema. He never managed to <laughs> blow himself up. And we're talking about like like I guess like Cronenberg blew up a guy's head in in the Fury. John Cassavetes just blows up like his entire body explodes. It's yeah. actually that's the and only reason to watch the movie. And they replay it from like sixteen different angles. <laughs> yes, they 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 lace that thing with here's like a, it's like the fucking <laughs> Matrix or something. But anyhow, uh, I, I was going to uh, getting uh, slightly uh, off I uh, <clears throat> I agree with a lot of you guys' points, but um, uh, also. Uh, as much as I like Dr. Paul Ruth, I couldn't help but be like, man, I kind of wish this was Richard Attenborough from oh. <laughs> from Jurassic Park, just like reenacting his role. <laughs> just being, um, just obviously, he would have like had, to, yeah, but yeah, he's he would have had like age like uh, uh, retroactively, but. Um, but I, I can like even though as you said, uh, Jack, that this is like a, a good versus evil tale. Um, I can definitely see this as a as the nearest predecessor to to Videodrome. Like the world building is the closest and and most sophisticated. Um, it, yeah. and it it's not just like adhesive to its conceit. It's not just a horror film um, like the first two. Like it's interested in exploring different parts of this world and and taking characters in different places. Um, and and I think one of my favorite scenes was um, <clears throat> when uh, he goes to visit. Uh, Stephen Lack's character Cameron he goes to visit the artist Benjamin Pierce um, who you know he knows him as, as this sort of like rogue scanner um, who uh, you, nobody like he, he sees his art at an art show but nobody will tell him where, where he uh, like he has to scan his address and all this stuff and he's heard about him but um, <laughs> he finally goes to like the, his like barn loft thing which is like kind of amazing on its own but yeah. uh, uh, he uh, talks to him about um, like scanning, and he talks about like he he asks him like how he keeps himself sane, and um, 
he's like, well, my art, my art keeps me sane. Um, and it's this really, really interesting moment where you can see like, um, you can see like seeds of Videodrome where like Videodrome, like we said, like is, is metatextual and it's commenting on art forms itself. And, and this very clearly, at least in this moment is talking about that as well. Like that, this seems like a surrogate for Cronenberg in this moment where he's like, you know, like I'm, I go through all this crazy like stuff in my head and the way that I get through it, the way that I navigate it, um, is, is through making these films and keeping myself sane through that and working, um, and it's really interesting. Um, I listened to this podcast, Travis Bickle on the Riviera. Um, Jake, I know you, you're a fan, correct? Yeah, I just started getting into them. They're really good. Yeah. And, and, um, one of the, one of the co-hosts, uh, Sean Witzke, who writes, uh, he's contributed to like Grantland in the past and Ringer now, but, um, he, uh, is a huge fan of Cronenberg and, um, I, I don't know if it's a recent episode cause I kind of listened to them out of place, but, uh, he talks about how like, um, he went through a bunch of Cronenberg's movies like in a row recently um, to when I heard this podcast and uh, he was like talking about how Cronenberg helps him feel things that he thinks are normal for other people to feel like so things so emotions that don't come naturally to him uh, I mean and like I assume that this is the way that cinema works for a lot of us. Um, but it's particular to him, to, to Cronenberg, where like Cronenberg's movies work as ways for him to access different emotions. And I found that really interesting in tandem with, with this character who's literally saying, my art keeps me sane. You know, it, it helps me exercise um, different like um, psychological needs, as, as I assume Cronenberg does as well. Yeah, I, I think it, like for for Cronenberg, um, I think he he is able to ally, he, he's able to create unusual concoctions of ingredients that get at facets of humanity that otherwise are very deeply internal. Um, he's able to kind of bring them to the surface in a very through an unusual kind of alchemy of of elements. I mean, his his views on human sexuality and so on are often very obtuse, very obscure, but they, they seem to be able to, he can bring them to to the forefront of the audience through the idea of, say, for example, a, a parasite that reduces people to a base sexual state or a base animal state. He kind of, he's able to, through science fiction, effectively, which, I mean, is really, it's what science fiction and, uh, you know, is really good at. And I mean, it's in a way of saying he's a, yeah. he's a horror director, he's really a science fiction director in, in many right. respects. I mean, and often more scientific than most. Um, he he really is able to create scenarios in which we can evaluate human behaviors in through you know very unusual lenses. I mean, certainly as a reaction to a divorce, the brood is a very unusual <laughs> kind of instruction. That, but I mean, it's a very interesting that the the conclusion of the film is essentially a child who has been damaged greatly by by her parents' uh, animosity towards each other. And that animosity is a very unusual science fiction horror kind of element. But, right. I mean, the the child sitting catatonic in the seat is very much representative of so many dramas about, you know, regular marital fallout. So, yeah, I, I think Cronenberg uh, is able to create scenarios that do, you know, kind of do... Um, Explore humanity. I, I know some people have complained about his films being too clinical or being too far removed from human nature, and I, you know, I, I feel his films are very much 
hedged in human nature they're they're just he just kind of explores it from a different angle you know and often from a very you know from an internal angle you know somebody starts from inside a person and moves out you know yeah. to, the, to the surface and that's kind of what i like about it cronenberg like has a perspective that's really there's no one else who's like cronenberg well, he, that i can think also of. like yeah. He's not like a he's not like a film school nerd, and he's not like in the sense that he's not he doesn't seem even though like Videodrome is very much about the medium. He's not obsessed with um, filmmaking like in the way that like you know Spielberg or Scorsese is, which are very much his contemporaries, just you know in a different country, but working at the same time doing very interesting things. Um, but like he's he's very. I, I don't know. Um, I forgot what uh, how I was going to put it, but um, he's not interested in just um, like he's not interested in fetishizing the genre, um, but exploring it in ways that that seem very like organic for him is is a very basic way of saying it, I guess. Yeah, I, I think I think he does. He's. I mean, it, there's a certain. I actually noticed. I think it's Cronenberg. I think it's The Brood is the first film, and it's only a third feature that's introduced as David Cronenberg's The Brood, that it was kind of from his third feature on, uh, pretty much he, he had escaped genre in a sense. He'd become like, yeah. you know, there's a few other people like John Carpenter and Steven Spielberg in a sense that, you know, they're kind of like, it's not it's not a horror movie, it's not a science fiction movie, it's a David Cronenberg movie, and that's all right, you right. need to know, you know? And yeah, I, I think like, he's... Yeah, but he, even like those Spielberg movies, like, uh, so Jurassic Park, which I love i dearly love that movie but but um like those movies are very much about the machinations of the genre and how he's manipulating the genre for himself like for another genre it's like the best of the best genre movies where like uh cronenberg even seems to transcend that uh, he does. I, I mean, I'm not a I'm not as big of, of a Spielberg fan, I guess, as many. I feel that like, yeah, I think Spielberg works within genre to a large degree. Um, right, right. So yeah, I, I think Cronenberg, like Cronenberg, is is an auteur writ large. I mean, he's he's a writer director who has this very very specific vision. So yeah, I think I think he it's it's just convenient to a to a sense that his his films overlap with what people consider to be horrific, which means he can make horror films but um <laughs> on accident yeah, yeah exactly it's kind of like what he's discussing anyway seems horrific like, like i was saying you know at the beginning of this with shivers i, I think it, it's a very unusual um kind of vision of humanity but that was kind of cronenberg trying his best to fit in and it doesn't yeah. fit in it's it doesn't really work but it's kind of but it it overlaps enough there's and you know there's there's violence and there's naked people but like even like in shivers i mean lynn lowry uh, does like a strip tease in the film and it's kind of kinky ish as like she's a nurse and she's taking off her nurse uniform so it's kind of kinky but it's also kind of clinical and medical it's kind yeah, of right. you know so like everything that cronenberg does is very much um like it just seems to be absolutely informed by his own aesthetic, and it does it. It only fits on on a technicality in a sense. Really, when you go into a Cronenberg film, you very much have to, I think, either you either embrace what Cronenberg is or you don't. I think if if you struggle on that level, it could be. And I know people who just don't like Cronenberg's films at all for various reasons, either because they just 
creep them out or because they just can't mm. find an entry point. And I think that's probably, well, you know, I, I think that's a common enough thing. Yeah, and his films are really kind of cold to the touch, so there's not really yeah. much general emotional connection you can make with them, despite how well-crafted they may be. It's it's true. There's no one in a Cronenberg movie that you can look at and go, you know, I want to be like that guy. Like there's <laughs> that's nothing, the, that, yeah. there's nothing yeah, there's like no that. like um, surrogate or anything like that. Yeah, it's not, right. it's not even like like a villain, like say James Cameron's The Terminator, like an iconic kind of villain badass. Like there's nothing like, like Scanners is almost like almost Scanners has been co-opted to the the mainstream. Almost like South Park, almost reduced it to it's it's this jokey kind of core with when there, there was the episode where eric cartman decided he had uh psychic powers and he was just making sound effects just kind of like and just making right. just like he was shooting psychic beams at people and he was having psychic battles with and it was just nonsense it was just people standing five feet away from each other in room and basically making noises at each other but that is the finale of scanners is literally just two guys making weird like kind of staring at each other and then the rest of the right, special right. effects but it's that- kind of a weird face off i mean there's no no one throws a punch no one wrestles it's just two guys staring each other down until one of them bursts into flames but that finale is so amazingly well put together because it, yeah, the it effects really hold up like you see veins appearing on their arms with blood coming out uh, at one point cameron's chest bursts open and this like red and yellow acid starts spewing out his oh, yeah, eyes yeah. explode and his, it, it's an amazing skin scene. off his face it, it is, and that's I, I'm, that's actually, I guess, Cronenberg. Uh, if Joe Blasco and Scanners and Rabbit, or in Shivers and Rabbit, really kind of set the template for a lot of the special makeup effects that would come later. Um, I know Dick Smith served as the special effects, uh, special makeup mm-hmm. effects kind of guru on this, and Dick Smith was really picked up where Joe, if Joe Blasco apparently invented the the kind of the bladder or con, using condoms and that that became kind of like oh that's a cool well, idea we Dick, Dick Smith that. more like uh more like effects Smith uh, yeah there you <laughs> go. <laughs> there's enough oh. dicks in Cronenberg's movies uh, uh, just don't to have a, a Dick Smith on on hold there um, you go so yeah like, I mean I, Dick Smith worked on on those on the special makeups, and they are, as Jake says, they're superb special effects. And what I love about Scanners is it's a very cool to the touch movie. It's kind of like I said, the acting is a bit stilted and everything, but that finale just goes like it, it starts and it's two guys staring at each other, and then there's like you know they kind of strain their face and they grimace as like oh they're constipated or whatever, and then it just starts going crazy and like you start like veins start popping up and they start going on fire and blood just starts. That's also like, credit to out. like we've talked about a lot of like the the the, the toolman on on his set, but like that's also a lot of credit. Um, I don't know who that was, but um, that like this and the brood are really well edited, um, which shouldn't be overlooked. Yeah, I, I think there's there seems oh, yeah. to be a great efficiency to to Cronenberg's films. He seems to be very, and I guess maybe it's because he's so he's so tuned into his his own ideas. There really is not a lot of excess. To, like like say his films run like ninety minutes, a hundred minutes, uh, uh, you know, kind of as a long for a Cronenberg film. He does seem to be able to just cut out the the cut out the excess very easily. Although that being said, Scanners I know was um 
Cronenberg himself has said that it was a really bad production for him. He actually didn't have a finished script when it went in. It was rushed into production. He hadn't actually finished the script at the time. So I think actually the, the end scene, I'm not sure, the, the final confrontation was possibly a last-minute improvisation, and the special effects came from that, which is, even makes it all the more impressive. But um, yeah, Scanners has a, a there's an absolutely kind of an efficiency to it. It's weirdly paced. It feels weirdly slow yeah. and still. Yeah. Um, but of course, it's all internal. I mean, there's it's not, you know, it's not action stars at all. It's just different guys wandering around who can do things with their minds. So yeah, it's it's an interesting element of his films. I think certainly is that he cuts to his his editing scheme is it's not fancy. There's no eye catching montage that kind of suggests that you know he's really working some magic. It's just very he he cuts into his action scenes i think the the pacing picks up he's able to modulate the pacing but it's very much driven by the necessity of the scenes and he's not he never seems to to kind of go down avenues that aren't of core relevance to the the central thesis he's very good at avoiding that sean you mentioned that the brood is really well edited um the the finale of that movie where it's cutting between um frank confronting his wife and oliver reed trying to navigate through these sleeping dwarves to get the little girl is like a master class of just building tension oh yeah like i said it's it it reminds me of like this it reminds me of like this scene in in hitchcock's notorious where like you're just waiting to see whether this wine bottle is going to fall in the cellar Um, yeah you just know those kids are going to wake up and it's not going to be good yeah it's and sure enough as, yeah. as a weird point of trivia about Scanners, actually, because I just kind of find it amusing, is that the lead actress in it, Jennifer O'Neill, also starred in... If, if Scanners is all about psychic people or people with telepathic power, she also starred in a really dodgy Lucio Fulci film called The Psychic, which, <laughs> if anyone ever wants to watch it, is not a very good movie, but it has some really gory special effects that are hilarious. So, And I'm guessing you own it? Uh, I don't own a copy, no, unfortunately. Oh, wow. No, send me a copy. I'll. I'll um, well, if you if you want a similar film that kind of also rips off The Exorcist, uh, I recommend an Italian film called The Visitor, uh, <laughs> wherein uh, Space Jesus, played by Franco Nero, sends um, I believe I think it's John Hurt or somebody back down to Earth to stop this eight year old girl from becoming the Antichrist. And Lance Henriksen's in it. Sam Peckinpah has a role. It's amazing. Oh, wow. Yeah, I've, that yeah. that is on my to watch list. I've not got around to it, but honestly, yeah, anything that has space Jesus in it is just yeah. definitely just, something I need to see. Just watch, Sean. I'll send a link in the Facebook. Just watch a trailer for The Visitor, and it's like the best thing you'll ever huh. see. The music is fantastic. <laughs> Interesting. Um, yeah. So I, I was gonna, um, I was gonna ask you guys which of these four are your guys' favorites. Uh, Jake, do you want to go first? Yeah, am I picking just one or? Yeah, why? yeah. If you had to just pick one, and why? Uh, if I had to go just one, I'm going to go with. Oh, this is tough. It, I would. It would be between either Shivers or Scanners. Um, I've liked Scanners longer. I'm going to go with Scanners. It's my favorite of the four. All right. And uh, if if I had to if I had to weigh in on that, I would say. I think I think for me, I definitely I think Shivers is the best film of them. Personally, I think I think it's the most. It has all the ideas. It just it's a wash with ideas, and it's just a really grim pop, you know, kind of interesting exploitation film. But at the same time, I would kind of agree that Scanners may be a pretty good entry point for 
It's one of his more straightforward films. So maybe I don't know. Shivers is kind of the deep end in a little way, a little bit. If you if you're wandering into it, I mean, it's kind of like. There's that scene with the kids on leashes in in Shivers. Yeah. They're like, this is like quoting Salo, I'm pretty sure, and that's a <laughs> that's a pretty high place to start your cinema career right. off with. So, um, Scanners may be a more genteel, or even The Brood might be a more genteel entry point. But I think Shivers certainly, for me, is is actually one of my very favorite. Cronenberg films out of his entire career. I know he's got Videodrome and Dead Ringers and a few others are probably inarguably better films, but God, Shivers just really works well. Huh. I think yeah. I would have to go with The Brood, which uh, gives us uh, three out of four covers. Really? Uh, the Brood is just... Um, it's the one that I appreciate most right now. Um, so I'm not far removed from any of them, but um, I really enjoy the upped uh, production value. Like it's just really nice to look at. I think it's well acted, and and um, there's also the petty, petty extra textual stuff about the divorce that I appreciate. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that's the one that that if I had to rewatch one of them now, that's the one that I would go to. Um, I, I like that, but. <clears throat> Um, oh, actually, as as an interesting point of trivia again, and I know I keep going back to Stereo, and Stereo is not even a film I like. Uh, Stereo is almost unwatchable, I think. It's a really interesting film, but it's actually almost unwatchable. It's kind of a paradoxical thing of that. As a film, it feels unne- it feels unnecessary that it's a film. But uh, Scanner or Stereo is actually the... Um, the first of Cronenberg's films that mentions the character drilling a hole in their head to release psychic huh. tension, and that is, of course, Michael Ironside's, um, Michael Ironside's character in Scanners does just that. So, it's kind of, it's, yeah, so it's kind of interesting to have that. You know, Cronenberg is interesting in that he does quote himself a lot. His, his huh. similar ideas kind of repeat a lot throughout his his, his cinema. So it's kind of interesting, even to, the, even to the fact where I believe during the production of Rabbit, at one point he got really freaked out about whether or not he was going to be able to finish Rabbit, and he tried to launch another screenplay that he was in the middle of writing, which was about two identical twin gynecologists. And that would suggest that Dead Ringers Wait, had that been Dead formed. Ringers? It yeah. is, that is Dead Ringers. It suggests that Dead Ringers was already written in the late 70s, or, or some hmm. draft version of it already existed in the late 70s, that he was already doing all this stuff, which is kind of crazy. Isn't, uh, isn't Stereo included as like a special feature on the Criterion of Videodrome? Uh, I think it's oh, on camera. is. Uh, yeah, no, cameras on Videodrome. I believe Scanners, uh, Criterion's release of Scanners has um, Stereo. And that's then a if good, you, if, yeah, that's a good and that's, yeah, it's a very, they're, they're both a great releases. If you have, um, if you're all region cable or European cable, Arrow did a, uh, actually, you know what, it's out, of, it's out of print now. Originally they released Videodrome and they, include with, they included a disc with all of Cronenberg's four films he made prior to Shivers, uh, which are oh, wow. Prime's. Crimes of the Future from the Drain Transfer and Stereo, uh, they've released that separately now. So, it, but like that's European locked. But um, interesting to look at. Other than that, I know uh, Fast Company, which is the weird black sheep of Cronenberg's career because it's about drag racing and has almost nothing to do with anything Cronenberg at all. But uh, Blue Underground <laughs> released that on DVD many years ago, and that came with I think Stereo and Crimes from the Future. On yeah. it as well, which is well, yeah, okay. which is the main reason. Just, I just as an aside, if you uh, have the video drum thing, camera is amazing. Uh, I haven't watched it in quite some time, but yeah, camera is amazing. I, I gotta get on that then. 
But uh, yeah, it's like twelve minutes or something like that. But um, uh, rabid, it seems like is probably um the one that uh, we all like the least, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, also interesting because Adam seems to like it the yeah. most. Well, the most yeah, I'm, out I'm of the second what he most. Really to say about that, or I'm curious as to what it really draws him to because it's it just feels messy to me in a way that Cronenberg's films generally aren't messy at all. Right. It's inter- I'm interested in that. That's kind of unusual. I've never met yeah. a defender of Rabbit. Most people have just For never sure. heard of it. Maybe he just like uh, hates Santa Clauses and likes armpit <laughs> fetishes. I don't know. Uh, a couple things. Let's uh, go with so, that. Um, uh, one, another thing that, that I've learned from um, Travis Bick on the Riviera podcast uh, is that they talk about Cronenberg as somebody who, uh, n- not solely Cronenberg, I can't remember who they group him with, but as somebody who uh, in the you know 70s, 80s, um, and maybe early 90s uh, were ahead of the pack in terms of social progressive, uh, in terms of like instilling the culture with um, pieces that could be um, progressive jumpstarts to uh, dialogue. And then they sort of like didn't move on from that. Like they didn't move with the culture um, and are, you know, are sort of like struggling now as it'd be like, but wait, like, but I've always been like progressive person, um, but their films don't really like um, progress, it's, it's, I guess. It's interesting. I, I guess Cronenberg, I mean, like I said earlier, Cronenberg's early, even from his very earliest films, I mean, he had different sexual, couple, I mean, he treated homosexuality and, polyamory kind of concepts were broached in his very earliest films as extensions of normal humanity or progressions of normal humanity so it was you know his idea of an unfettered human consciousness or an unfettered human sexuality would open up these avenues as normal which in the late 60s was not a very commonly held belief um so the, I, I think he he certainly paved the way for all kinds of on you know he or he certainly broached these topics in a way that was not he wasn't condemned i mean in hollywood for the longest time homosexuality was really just a shorthand for perversion and deviancy i mean it was oh uh, yeah there's a scene in, in shivers where there's like a lesbian sex scene but like it's it's like seen as like perverse right like they're like yeah, I, and I guess I guess the issue like to say it is that Cronenberg really broaches a lot of these things as being just elements of humanity, particularly um, you know again I keep going back to stereo stereo. God, as much as I dislike that film, it really is like a it's got an incredible amount of the stuff that would show up in his later films. But um, the the problem with Cronenberg, I think, is not so, like I think he's very open minded and progressive himself, but his films are such a niche kind of interest in a kind of overriding alien human dimension that I think he has trouble it's it's his films aren't progressive in the same way they're they examine parts of of humanity that are changing or altering under external stimuli which is not kind of a normal way of examining anything kind of on a, a standard social element you know it's, it's he doesn't he's, like I can't think of any of his films have particularly like crash has sexual coupling like gay couples and so on in it but it's about people with a car crash fetish so it's not really a way of <laughs> right, right. it's not me it's not a way right. of forwarding a general sexual dynamic in any way shape or form uh, so yeah I, I think his his films have i think cronenberg in a way is too he's too cerebral to push forward uh social issues in that way i think huh. you have to be open-minded to to watch a Cronenberg film, I guess, or to not feel repulsed by some of Cronenberg stuff, but he's not exactly going to be at the forefront of, of 
kind of popularizing yeah. that. It's not like he's not like making happy-go-lucky kind of romantic comedies where everyone's happy with you know different things or whatever. Right, for sure. Um, if only. <laughs> well, I, I um, yeah, I uh, I will say that um, as somebody who has been like indoctrinated into this stuff, um, that. I think I've appreciated talking about these more than I have watching them. Um, not that they were like a suffer, although parts of Rabbit were sort of just like dull, but um, it's still, you know, uh, as, as like parts of like horror films with like uh, pieces of exploitation, aspects of exploitation, um, it's still just like, it's not my cup of tea, but um, I definitely appreciate it. And, and more than anything, I like seeing it as like parts of Cronenberg's uh catalog somebody who i really do care about um but you know they they are so um they are so cerebral that they end up being more interesting to talk about than than to watch for me but um yeah i guess we'll see how that progresses in uh, the second part um any parting words from you guys um you got some good films coming up that's uh that's all i'll say you do. You you got some good films, and you've also got some really weird stuff. And you have you have existence too. So, <laughs> oh yeah, I've yeah, been meaning to go. watch Dead Ringers is for like thirteen years, and I, I have never gotten to it, which is partly uh, Criterion's fault for being out of print. But uh, yeah. yeah, it's that's that's a great movie, but uh, again, that's not uh, again, that's just not a movie that's gonna push forward a social agenda because <laughs> everyone in that movie is really fucked up. <laughs> all right if, if you're interested i would recommend uh a lot of his a couple or not a lot a couple of his later films i particularly like cosmopolis even though it's it's really a challenging film um and it's kind of a hard film to l- really like or even tolerate if you're watching it but i i really like it and find there's a lot of interesting things about it i also did yeah like that I, I've, quite a lot. I've seen I've seen uh, History of Violence and Eastern Promises, but uh, and Spider, but um, I, I haven't seen anything past Eastern Promises. So um, I, I'm in, I'm eager if uh, after I get through the next four, um, or you know, get I, I've seen like you know Videodrome and Crash and and, and Butterfly, but um, I'm eager to see once uh, second part is done if I'll continue and, and go on to a Dangerous Method and Cosmopolis and Map to the Stars. Well, I would say if, if you have a choice between a Cosmopolis or a Dangerous Method, go go with Cosmopolis. Have either yeah. of you guys seen Map to the, Maps to the Stars? I have. I really like that one, too. It's All not right. as good as his other films, but um, A Dangerous Method is a chore to get through. Okay. Yeah, yeah I saw I saw that one in, in theater, and I was kind of... I, I like, Honestly, I don't understand what pushed him to make it. I can't discern a, a thesis behind the film that's in any way kind of compelling or interesting it feels would you, would you say it feels like uh the young and the restless um yes <laughs> it's one of those films that's like literally all i remember from it is just kira knightley gurning in a fucking russian accent um, she does this weird history or historic um film yeah, it's it's about what it is. It's about Jung and Freud uh, and their competing methods of psychoanalysis. But um, Kira Knightley plays his one of their patients or one of Freud's patients, okay. and she's Russian. And no one, else, as far as I can recall, no one else because obviously, like Freud is Austrian, and yeah, you know, no no one else like Viggo Mortensen and Michael Fassbender don't particularly put on accents for to represent <laughs> where they're from. But Kira Knightley puts on the most Russian accent she can 
come up with. She also does the weirdest fucking thing with, like, where she's jutting her, like, chin out as far as it can go. (laughs) Yes, yes, she does. Interesting. It's, like, 3D. And it's, like, the first shot of the film is her stupid chin. Huh. Yeah. All right. But, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. uh, You got some interesting stuff up ahead. Um, I'm excited. I I don't know if you're doing the dead zone, because the dead zone is, I would say, probably the... If you if you had to show a movie a Cronenberg movie to a bunch of people who really don't watch unusual movies, the Dead Zone is I think the safest, most by the book Cronenberg movie of the lot. And it's it's not yeah. a bad movie. It's not one of my favorites, but the Dead Zone is genuinely a positively normal film by Cronenberg standards. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll be I'll be uh, yeah Dead Zone will be next on my list. But um, all right, well uh, for the sake of time, we should probably. Uh, cut this off but uh, this has been truly um a niche episode uh, i think we traffic in in niche content um genuine generally but um uh i hope that there have been some people either really curious about cronenberg or uh just huge cronenberg fans that have been delighted by by hearing such a in-depth um niche episode all about um the first four movies of david cronenberg um <laughs> Uh, and I, I think that that's probably true. So um, I appreciate this, and um, I hope you all did as well. Uh, thanks for joining me, Jake and Jack. Uh, where can people find you on the internet, Jack? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at uh, effigy105. Jake? I'm on Twitter at Jake Tropila. That's J A K E T R O P I L A. And you can find me on Twitter at M-R-G-L-I-N-I-S, Mr. Glennis. And I hope that if you like this, you have either already or will uh, rate our podcast um, five stars. Yeah, if you want to check out Twitter, uh, I have posted the rabbit uh, Santa's assistant. So uh, <laughs> That's true. There we go. For research purposes. Yeah, and uh, yeah, yeah. You can follow Optimus Vaccine at Optimus Vaccine, um, and you can also like us on Facebook. All right, guys. Well, I think we did our due diligence for uh, early Cronenberg here. Uh, we bid you adieu. See ya. Yep.